0: Good morning, folks. Uh, It's so good to be with all of you as we jump into some time together this morning uh, for some breakfast, Um, spending a little bit of time together talking. Some of you may watch this at a different time and be having lunch instead of breakfast or dinner instead of breakfast. But here we are uh, on this lovely morning, uh, jumping into our discussion Um, today. As many of you joining us or watching this may know, some of you may not, uh, we are taking some time to talk together um, over uh, this breakfast about some of the realities that are unfolding around us concerning specifically the issue of racism that has once again been exposed as present in our society and uh, as something that our black community And also uh, our people of color, our Latino community, uh, the others experience uh, the the world of those who are minorities. And so it's it's been brought to the surface again. Lots of things are swirling right now. Um, Lots of opinions on multiple sides. Um, And so we just thought, uh, like I've always said to you guys in the Facebook Live space, when I sense something is going on that I'm dealing with in regularity over breakfasts and lunches, I I tend to want to bring it here because I know that if it's going on in my world and the people I'm encountering, then it is likely a part of what's going on in your world. So before we jump into the issues uh, that I would like to kind of dialogue through today, I want to give you a couple of things just to be aware of. Uh, Firstly, this week, I am going to be talking uh, just here with you, um, and I'm, I'm just going to be kind of sharing some stuff, and I'll explain that context in a second next week. I'm going to be back here uh, on Facebook Live, and I'm going to have uh, some of my dear friends with me. Uh, Those dear friends also happen to be black. And so we are going to be dialoguing through uh, this space that I've just stepped into, which they will have had the opportunity to watch and listen to, and the spaces in which they are experiencing this whole journey, so that next week we can really spend some time hearing from those who represent, if you will, in at least in my life story, the black community and the experience the black community is having through all of this. So that this week you kind of get my experience and next week you kind of get theirs. And as those two come together, I think we will be able to have some sense of where we can go from here as a community, as a people uh, to move forward into what we want to see the redemptive end of the cancer of racism, wherever it may exist, as much as we can. In the same way as we want to see the end of the orphan crisis, the end of poverty, the end of human trafficking, the end of fill in the blank, we know that the likelihood of seeing it completely eradicated any of those is very, very unlikely on a sinful planet. But we are going to work furiously towards seeing it redeemed in both small and large spaces. So, second... Uh, the context of this discussion. So I I just want you to be aware uh, how I'm coming into this space. So what I'm going to do during this uh, breakfast together is I'm going to be sharing my journey, my experience as I'm wrestling through the things I'm encountering. So this is not a commentary on all of these things. I may be completely off base on some of these things. I'm still in process and I'm still journeying, but I haven't started journeying a week and a half ago by Googling six statements and getting definitions. I have been on this road for a long time. Uh, I was was born and raised in South Africa where I lived uh, in the environment of apartheid and watched that unfold even as a small child. So I grew up in a unique context from most Americans that are my age. Um, and then I, uh, became a pastor and I was in ministry. So issues of unredeemed spaces were just issues I encountered more regularly and had to think through. And then of course, as many of you know, uh, my family is a family of eight and four of my children are biological, four adopted, and our four adopted children are, uh, children that were born in Ethiopia. Uh, so they are black. And so I have a home where the realities that we are facing now have been a reality for uh, close to a decade now. And understanding that my children are growing up in this cultural context, I have been talking for a long time with people on all sides of this issue to try and wrestle through how I parent my eight children in a manner worthy of the gospel. So that's that's been a part of my journey. And then uh, as pastor of Mosaic Church, uh, we, a couple of years ago, really... Uh, knew that we needed to be more intentional in our journey into being a place that uh, is safe for diversity, that invites diversity, uh, diversity of uh, culture, personality, ethnicity, uh, gender diversity in terms of men and women both feeling empowered and encouraged here, uh, just that whole kind of world. So we've been talking a lot about diversity. And lots and lots of great conversations, hard conversations, complicated conversations have come up. And in those conversations, the issue of racial reconciliation, the issue of racism as it exists in our nation today has uh, been a part of that conversation. So I have been on a long journey, but in recent days, that journey has expanded and accelerated significantly because I have been digging in more than ever, and some new things have come to light that I'm very excited about for myself. So, all that to say, this is Renault's personal journey. Uh, I love doing that, inviting people into my journey. It's messy, it's not solidified. Conclusions are not yet drawn. uh, They're drawn somewhere, but some places they might be wrong, but I, I just love doing that. So, over lunch or breakfast, I'll typically do that. Here's my journey, here's my stuff. Let's see where it goes. So much of what I'm gonna be saying is just that. And then uh, the the other context you should just be aware of that I'm very aware of is that this discussion that we're having is taking place in the middle of a context that certainly is far from ideal to have a hard discussion. It's kind of like when you need to have a hard discussion with your spouse if you are married uh, and it's 11.30 at night after a very, very long day and the kids have driven you nuts, and you're both exhausted, but it's waited too long, so you've gotta have this conversation, and you're like, man, it's just not ideal to have a hard conversation at 11.30 at night when you're both exhausted. But the conversation has to be had because that's the context, it's waited too long. We are in this environment that we've had a four-year, and beyond that too, but especially four-year political environment That just has typically been an environment that produces a sense of pick a side, have an opinion and push hard. Then we're in an election year. So whenever we're in our election year cycle, it heightens the uh, nature of the passion by which we bring our opinions to the table and the convictions by which we stand to them. And so it produces a little more tension, a little more fight, right? And then uh, we walked into a global pandemic uh, which, in of itself was just creating stress and anxiety and uncertainty that leaves us all off balance. But then it also produced a whole set of opinions about how to deal with it, what to do. And they ended up on very different sides. And now there's giant fights. I mean, who would have ever thought that our big hill we would go and die on is whether to wear a mask or not. I mean, you know, if I would told you that a year ago, you would literally have been like, there's no ever, ever, ever in the human future that we would literally have wars about whether we should wear a mask or not. Well, welcome to 2020. Who knew? So that, that, that's in play. Um, and then uh, on top of that comes into play the reality that we live in a globally connected social media space. Now, the reason I say social media versus just media is it was hard enough with media, right? Because media has opinions. And they, they tell you when they start with their opinion, I'm totally unbiased, here's my opinion. And you're just like, whatever. Um, and so you just don't know with media what is really real or what's being twisted with words or what, what are you leaning toward. And then we threw in social media, which made every single human an expert. And 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 oh my goodness, it, it gets thrown at us a trillion miles a second. So we're in an environment where A thousand things are happening around us that already make this environment super hard. And now now we're supposed to sit down in this environment and have a discussion about the hard realities of racism and where it exists in our country. While that discussion is deeply personal to those having the discussion, because It is going to require a great deal of examination and humility and patience with each other because it is going to feel often like an attack on different things. When I say one thing, I am attacking the foundational philosophy and therefore the reality for another person and vice versa. And so I have found this to be an extraordinarily complex space. And into that space, um, I have traveled trying to discern for myself first as a husband and a parent leading a home in that space, how on earth uh, I am supposed to engage in that? So that's the context in which this breakfast is taking place. So however this goes, just understand that, my journey in a complex space at 11.30 at night when we're all exhausted, whoop, it's gonna be so fun. Uh, for me personally, my journey really came to a clarity of at least a structure, a a construct in which I can navigate the issues that I'm trying to deal with. And that clarity came as a result of us at Mosaic Church wanting to express in clear form where we stand as a church, and obviously in this case where I stand also as a person. And so we worked very diligently Uh, on putting together a video that would put into as simple a form as possible the complexities of the issue on the table and actually my journey in developing that video really helped me clarify and solidify in my mind the construct in which i can enter this space and and try to weed through the complexity so what was the construct you may have seen the video you may not have seen the video it's on our social media spaces as mosaic Um, but That video, uh, what made a lot of sense in my head as I was wrestling through that and praying through that was to look at it through the lens of a person who has had chronic illness or pain for a very long time. They have expressed in multiple ways throughout their long journey to friends, family, doctors, this chronic pain. But because the solutions are not fully revealed or complex, uh, we, we we're constantly wrestling through new tests and and new things. It might be this, it might be that. We wow, well, we don't think it's that. And this person saying, I really think it's a, it's something serious, and I, I really feel it, and I really know it. And ten years ago, I was in a test, and and they said they think it was cancer, but then we never really did anything about it, and it never really went anywhere. And so I still think it's cancer, but since then, there's been a lot of talk about it, maybe not being cancer. I, I kind of took that patient who's dealing with that chronic illness and and I, I I looked at it through that lens for a little bit the the black community and and certainly obviously including uh, the communities uh, of color as well like our Latina community because we they all experience this on some level but in this particular context the limelight was shone on the experience the black community is having because of the issue of racism so I'm going to speak in terms of the black community for that reason. Uh, in this particular discussion. So the black community has been feeling a chronic pain um, from the realities of the way they both can individually often be treated, or as a collective, some of the realities that has caused um, struggle in that community. And, and there's been discussion for decades about whether or not this is actually really the result of racism or not and is it in, in, in the nation and foundations or not? Is it just in the heart of people or not? And so I, I, I took this chronic patient and I was like, okay, uh, they are uh, they're in the space. And then the three deaths that occurred, kind of brought this both the sense of the chronic pain increased to a point so unbearable that they're back with with the tests again like we got to look at this folks like the pain is unbearable is it in fact the cancer of racism and simultaneously those three deaths in sequence that were tragic and terrible but exposed again this disease of racism uh, became the very revealing test like an MRI machine going yep there's a tumor there's a tumor So I I took it from there. We're sitting in a hospital room together. The patient, in this case, the black community who has had chronic pain for a long time, has just found out again, yep, we, we think it's cancer. And I started there. I'm like, what would I do if I were in that room? And this was a journey to go and eradicate cancer from the human body. And that's helped me construct where everything's playing out. So as we talk through this time together, I'm gonna kind of come back to that construct. I'm gonna bring things into that construct where I see them fitting. It's not perfect, it's not ideal, but it's at least for now a helpful space for me to be able to navigate some very complex waters and see the connections between some of these issues that we are dealing with uh, in this very, very complicated journey. So, let's begin. And, and we will begin here that oftentimes, I think as I have journeyed with people that have dealt with chronic pain, at certain points where the pain became very unbearable, and they were um, uh, essentially unable to do and function in everyday life because of the pain. In other words, uh, it, it really debilitated them. Then, typically, People would gather around them, their immediate family, friends, and so on, and there'd be a certain sense of empathy and sympathy. They would feel seen uh, on some level. Now, it would still be difficult because they're seen, hey, I, man, I'm so sorry you're in pain. I see that. But at the same time, there was no clarity on why this pain was occurring. So it was kind of a, I see you, but man, I don't know. But because it's ongoing, it's long haul, that kind of ebbs and flows, right? So a patient who's in chronic pain, when when, I, when you talk to them, when I've talked with them, I often hear them say things like, man, I just feel very alone a lot of the time. And, and the reason I feel alone is not because people intentionally leave me alone, but who can actually journey through the long haul of chronic pain if you don't actually have the chronic pain? You see, the person that has it feels it every day, sometimes less, sometimes more, sometimes it's in the background, sometimes in the foreground, depending on the the bomb or medications of that day or, or how they slept or whatever, but it's always there. And the people that don't have the chronic pain, it's not always there for them. So they are dealing with this person as though life is totally normal on a daily basis. And every now and then when it escalates to unbearable level, then we see you. So the people with chronic pain often feel very unseen, very unheard, very alone. And that's what I've been hearing a lot Uh, from the black community, from my black friends is, dude, man, we live with this reality every day. Yes, some days I go through a day and it's not on my mind forefront, it's background noise. It's little feelings and thoughts about what might happen or what I might experience. It's walking into situations and wondering whether or not this is gonna be an issue. It's feeling frustration about some things that I see in the bigger picture. And then other days, it's just upfront in front of me but the reality is it's always a thing for me i've spoken to a number of parents uh that um uh say to me you know the the luxury that we have to have our kids grow up in our home and not talk about these things from the time they're very very young is, is not afforded us because our kids will encounter these realities whether in individual spaces or in broader spaces and so they feel very alone so we We must start, and and this is true in a hospital room, right? The cancer patient has, yes, there's cancer. We know what the chronic pain is. There's a long road ahead to eradicate this cancer. And the family around that cancer patient, the first thing we need to do is like we do in that room, get around them, put our hands on them, pray for them. Oh my gosh, look them in the eye and say, it's gonna be okay, we're with you on this. We're gonna be with you all the way. See, when you're friends with someone that just got cancer or your family with someone who just got cancer, that's what you do. You get with them and you say, I see you. Right now, the attention is gonna be diverted to your journey and our journeys will take a background seat to your journey because of the intensity and necessity to see your journey healed. We need to, especially as the white community in America and the white church in America We need to step forward more than we ever have before because more often than not, we haven't at all. We need to step forward and say, we see you, black community. I see you, my black friend. Um, I see you and I'm with you. And this is gonna be a hard road, but you won't do it alone. You're gonna have me by your side. I'm going to. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be a, an advocate. I'm going to be a, a voice. I'm going to. St- when you feel too tired to speak, I'm going to speak on your behalf to the doctors. I'm going to wrestle with you, bridge for you, whatever it takes. I'm with you. You will not be alone. this is where the issue of Black Lives Matter kind of played into the equation and plays into the equation. So, when I, you know, I've heard two major things. Whenever Black Lives Matter the Black Lives Matter conversation comes to the table. Um, well, I, I hear three things. First, I hear from my friends who are black and the black community that Black Lives Matter, the statement, when, when, when I say that, when, when, I, uh, when, when I declare that in some way to them or I'm a voice for it, it is one of the most profound ways in which they feel seen. It is the moment that you get down with that cancer patient and say, I see I'm, I see you, you have cancer, I get it. I don't know what we're gonna do about it yet, I don't know what the journey's gonna look like forward, but I just want you to know I see it and I see you and we're gonna do this thing together. Uh, And and you matter enough that I'm going to jump in and focus on you. In my video, I mentioned the idea of a child coming to you in your home that's been wounded emotionally or physically, and you gather them up in your arms and you have a conversation when suddenly all the other things you were doing, the other kids, you were talking to two kids in a discussion, you immediately divert from that. You're focused on this kid. It doesn't mean the other kids don't matter. It It just means right now, this child requires special attention because they are particularly wounded. And, and so I've heard from the black community, when we say black lives matter, we stand by that statement. It is oddly enough, a statement that has transcended to a point where the statement is helpful in helping them feel seen. But I've heard two things about the statement. One, that when we make that statement, people then say, yeah, all lives matter. So you can't say black lives matter because by, by that definition, are you suggesting that all lives don't matter? So I, I get it. At first, you, you you sort of have to. It's like the kid saying, "We were in the middle of a discussion. Why are you diverting your attention to my sibling?" And and what you answer is, "I love you dearly. You, you, but but can't you see there's blood coming out of their arm, right?" So and, and then it's like, "Oh, uh, okay. When when we've got this situation healed, then we can get back to all right. Every everybody." You all mattered before, you all mattered during, but now I can give my attention to all. So when we say black lives matter and our response is all lives matter, we shouldn't say that, we are ignoring the fact that we have a particular group of people that are particularly wounded and we are allowed to in compassion in every other category give special attention to the wounded by not suggesting other people don't matter. But in this one, apparently we can't. And I would just say, when that comes up, that's why all lives matter is just such a unnecessary and unhelpful thing to say when we say black lives matter, because we don't mean all lives don't matter. We just mean there's special attention here. I've also heard that the trouble with saying black lives matter is that that by definition then means that we are supporting an organization, a movement, that is where this phrase was sort of born from uh, that is called the Black Lives Matter movement, right? Uh, The organization through which this phrase came. Now, this gets really complicated because there are times when a particular brand, a particular logo, a particular phrase belongs to a particular organization or a particular movement. And anytime you use that phrase, it only belongs to that movement. So when you use it, there is no other version in which that phrase is used other than representing that movement. So there was a season where the phrase Black Lives Matter belonged to a movement and it was their branding for making their movement into this issue of abolishing racism. But at times a phrase or a uh, a picture transcends beyond the movement. It becomes something that in of itself is powerful. And useful and helpful. But the trouble is it still also belongs to the movement. So now you've got not an either or but a both and. So when a phrase belongs to no movement, we're we're in great shape. Use the phrase. It transcends all movements and it's a powerful phrase to use. It helps people feel seen. When the phrase belongs to a movement and that's where its primary space is, it hasn't transcended that movement, well then don't use it if you don't and can't stand by the philosophies and realities of that movement. But when it's both, it's transcendent and it belongs, now we have to take a certain amount of care with a phrase like that. Our options are, don't use the phrase at all, because it might suggest that you stand by a movement. That is an option. But it's not a super helpful option because it means we're taking a very powerful way to tell a wounded community, we see you, and we're eliminating it because it might suggest that we belong to a movement that we don't stand by in some of the areas of that movement. Okay. The other option is, uh, stand by the movement, use it and just kind of roll with that. But that's unhelpful, especially if you haven't done research on the movement. And I'll get to that in just a second. So then we have to come up with a new way of saying, okay, there are spaces in which this phrase can be used effectively and uh, disconnected from suggesting that I or you stand by the full nature of a movement. But in order to do that, I just have to be careful. Now, I'm going to use an example. This is not necessarily the only or even one of the things that we can do, but in our particular world or context, if I say Black Lives Matter versus using the hashtag Black Lives Matter whenever I'm posting anything, those can be different because they both say the same thing initially, but one may attach to something that one doesn't. Now again, uh, if, if our discussions well, ho- hold on the, the hashtag, that's not my point. Remember, this is Renault's journey as he's wrestling through this stuff. Believe me, I'm wrestling through layers and layers, but we have to start thinking on that level. What connects it directly to the movement? What doesn't? Where can I use it effectively? Where is it is it great? Now, you, you're asking the question, I'm sure as I have, this movement, Black Lives Matter, what about it? You keep saying, well, we, we can't really stand by that movement. Why, why would you say that? They're doing such great things uh, in their efforts to bring awareness and change in the areas of abolishing racism in our country and bringing about equality. So that's a great question. So when you get into movements um, that are that are broad, it it is important as believers of Jesus who stand by wanting to engage in redeeming the unredeemed spaces of the world in a biblically sound and helpful manner. We don't do things like the rest of the world all the time. Sometimes, if the rest of the world is doing something that happens to also be a biblical way of solving something, then we jump in. We don't say, well, because they're doing a biblical thing, we can't do that biblical thing because we don't want people to think we do what the world does. If they're doing something that is a biblical solution to something, then we're going to also do that same thing. But often the world's solution to things then end up not being biblical solutions. And in that case, we need to step in differently. So with an organization like Black Lives Matter, there are a number of things that they're doing that are very much important. The issues and stands that they're standing against are issues and stands that we as a biblical community should stand against. In fact, we should have stood against those things before anybody else had to, right? So for example, uh, their efforts to make sure that racism is exposed, we should also make sure that we are making effort to expose racism and where they're making good efforts to that we can say, we are glad they're making good efforts. The trouble is that simultaneously, they are also doing a number of things that we would say, we can't get behind that because it is opposed to the way that the Bible would call us to do things. I'm gonna give you an example specific to Black Lives Matter. So, on the Black Lives Matter website, in their belief statements, here's one of the statements that you might read. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended family and village that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children Are uh, comfortable. So at first you're like, ooh, but that, that, we're a village, we do it together. But they're very, very particular in their philosophy that in order to heal some of the um, uh, division that occurs, what we need to start with is to disrupt the family nucleus as we understand it in the Western culture. Well, the trouble is that the way that we understand the family nucleus in the Western culture is the way that we understand the family nucleus from a scriptural standpoint, right? Now, I'm not saying if that family nucleus is creating diver- uh, division and stuff, that's what i am saying. A family structure that we are called scripturally to preserve and to hold to, this movement says the way to solve this problem is to disrupt that entire philosophical foundational idea of what a family is and to create a totally new version of what it means to be a family. And we would say No, that is not a solution. That's going to lead to a far greater mess than solving anything. There is an example of how the foundational structures of a movement violate the way that we would solve other problems. And we need to be able to say we can't get behind that. Organizations often also support a whole bunch of stuff that you and I might be unaware of unless we do some investigating. And so when we give to that organization financially, or we give voice to that organization by standing behind them, we will, without realizing it, give resources and voice to things we might otherwise actually stand opposed to. So most organizations will have ties to things beyond what is on their brochure. When you send money to an organization like Black Lives Matter, in, in a time like this, you are making the assumption, if you don't do your homework, that your money is gonna to go to them to help them in their efforts to eradicate racism. That's what you would think. Some of it will. But some of it will also go to many other things that have nothing to do with this particular issue that are part of this great broader issue of bringing about a, um, a disruption to the way we understand family. That means there's gonna be lots of things supported politically with the money you sent. So now you find out, hold on, I sent my money for this, but it was used for these things that I would never have wanted my money used for. So know this, welcome to the Western culture and the planet right now. Everything we do, we, we, we have the responsibility and the stewardship of our resources and our influence to make sure that when we get behind certain things, that we understand at least all of the things that they are behind. Otherwise, we are getting behind things that we would say, we really, as a biblical community, should not be getting behind those things. And they're part of a movement, so we can't support that movement sort of as a, as a blanket. We have to say, we support what that movement does in these areas, and so we're going to do that as well, but we're not behind the movement. Okay, so we can't get behind Black Lives Matter because of a number of those things. Go do your research, go look at where the money flows, go look at what else they're about, and then you'll see, man, they're about some great things. And they're also about some not great things and we can't get behind them. But Black Lives Matter statement is powerful so I want to use that and I want to make sure that in that I'm at least being conscious of the fact that it can tie to this. So we need to work together on either finding better more effective ways to help our Black community feel seen or we need to make sure that this transcends and use it effectively but do our homework and don't get just behind movements. So In all of this, as we talk about what it looks like to enter into these spaces, the Black Lives Matter um, statement, not movement now, statement, is a beginning point in which we begin to bring awareness and we acknowledge that there is a problem. So in the video that I did, the solution to invading cancer in your body and eradicating it Uh, is in its simplest form, the following. You have to first and foremost actually acknowledge that it's there. Bring awareness to it. You do tests, you're like, yep, it's there. The doctors talk to the family, no, they have cancer. Are you sure, doc? No, no, definitely cancer. I mean, could it be something? No, 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 that's definitely what it is. So you need to bring awareness. You need to acknowledge it. Then there is a process of examination. Where is the cancer? Is it only in the liver? Because that's where we found it initially. Or is it in the lymph nodes and other places? What kind of cancer is it? Is it a cancer that's aggressive or not aggressive? Does it linger in dark spaces in the human body? We must go find out what it is, where it is, where it exists because we can't really prescribe the right kinds of treatments until we understand that. So there is a process of examination. And then finally, Um, You need to then uh, develop treatments and prescribe those treatments and carefully watch those treatments to see if they're effective, and if they are, continue them, and if they're not, eliminate them. And we know that in the treatment protocol for things like cancer, the tension that you play is, how do we kill the cancer without killing the body? Because the same medications that kill the cancer do damage to the body. So you do make the assumption in going into a journey of eradicating cancer from the body that the body will, will pay a price. How big of a price, we do not fully know, but it will pay a price. We call that price the side effects of the medications that affect the body negatively. Okay, so in the journey, the Black Lives Matter piece is part of the awareness piece. That also is part of what we talk about when we say, is it necessary or helpful to have protests? So protests have been happening, and there's a lot of argument out there about whether protests are helpful, what do they actually do? Uh, are they any good and then of course when protests move beyond protests and move into riots or violent riots then there's all sorts of talk about the reality that now we know protests are not helpful they're just damaging look what they do they create violence and riots and then those violence and riots create mess and and the whole thing is backwards and it's an injustice okay so uh, let me start here i've heard a lot of talk back and forth about whether we should do protests or not and i usually hear it in this context you know Protests are fine, I guess, but they're sort of useless because what we really need to do to bring change is go actually change things. And coming together and protesting changes nothing. I would just say that I, I totally disagree with that premise insofar as the journey of healing cancer will require examination and then reform. But before examination and reform, there is a process by which awareness is brought to the table, and awareness often leads to examination, which leads to reform. So without awareness examination and reform never take place because those are both really hard works. And so once they get a little hard, awareness fades. That's why they have you know, the, the color pink for breast cancer. Yeah, everybody knows that there's breast cancer. I get it. But we forget in like four days and we go on with our lives unless we actually have breast cancer. And so we bring awareness constantly. Guys, remember it's here. Remember it's around. And remember that community needs our support, our resources and our help. And we're like, oh yeah. So we have a breast cancer day. All those things are essentially versions of holding signs up and and protesting or or declaring, hey, there's a problem here and we together can be a solution. So protests are necessary and they're helpful, uh, not just in short term, but ongoingly as this fades from our immediate space. Protests will sometimes give space for people that are in extremes, or are people that are violent, or are intending to use platforms to do terrible things, and they'll use those platforms to do ter- terrible things. People will loot during protests because they can, and people will burn things down and be violent during protests because they can. It doesn't mean that all the people at the protest, are it means that sometimes in doing something good, there is a side effect, and that side effect is not good. Okay, so, Nobody that I've talked with on any side of the community has said to me, man, I I just think that burning buildings down and burning police stations down and and looting, I I think it's very good. It's just, it's what it is. It should happen. They're all like, yeah, no, I mean, that is not good at all. But if that is part of what happens in the effort to bring awareness to this cancer to the point that it will actually be examined and reformed, then I suppose we tolerate that for the sake of healing the cancer. That's how you would talk about a medication that was given to a cancer patient that then also caused their hair to fall out. And and you're like, man, that's really not, that's terrible that you have to live with this. But why do we tolerate that? Why don't we say to the doctors, are you crazy? Stop with this medication. Look what it did to my hair. No, we go, no, that's not good. But we tolerate that because we know that we have to heal this. So when we step into these spaces of Black Lives Matter protests, remember that that's part of how we together bring awareness. Now, let me just say this. The white community and the white church have typically, in general, been a, uh innocent bystander. Now, I say that, when I say that, they've behaved like an innocent bystander. I, we're, we're just, man, more power to you. Do your thing. But... We're silent. We're quietly standing by. We're with you. Off you go to your chemo. Uh, Good luck. We're praying for you. Those of us that even got behind this. Our black community needs to hear the passion and the the advocating for them in this reality of eradicating this cancer more than they hear it in themselves. Uh, I have watched several of my friends have to advocate in the medical journey of someone that has a chronic illness and when you're in a room with a kid with a chronic illness or a patient with a chronic illness who's exhausted and tired and not fully lucid because they're on massive amounts of meds, they're, I watch this mom, this dad, this sibling, this friend talking to the doctors like it's them that has the cancer. No, we're not, we're not gonna get, no, we're gonna push forward. What other tests can be taken? That's what the black community should feel from us. Men, we are not just with you like, good luck we are for you and we are going to stand by you and we're going to stand in that doctor's office. And if we take flack for people's arguments that would usually be directed at you, bring them our way, we'll take them. If, if you're going to need to have a fight with someone that's trying to tell you that there's no cancer here, bring them to us, we'll have the fight for you so you can go rest because you're the one with the cancer uh, or, or have been the victim of this cancer. So that's how it's got to feel. So it's very important that we step into these spaces. Along with stepping into those spaces, it's important that we then become educated as a white community and a white church as to where we have been naive in the things that we've said and done or even in our understanding of how this whole thing plays out because um, there are words being thrown around that then cause defensiveness right away. So in in my particular journey, uh, the big one that's been thrown around that I've seen, man, it just triggers right away is this uh, word white privilege, right? We throw the word white privilege around and it's just like, hold on, w- what do you mean? Are you saying that I'm privileged because I'm white? Well, well, yes, oh, that's not true. So then I hear all this kind of stuff. Like for example, um, I've often heard in the conversations like that it comes up and, uh, and someone will say, look, I grew up in a, in a, in a uh, hard neighborhood that was poor as well. I have no more privilege than uh, somebody who is black. And I'm like, yes, there's some truth to that from an economic standpoint and from a, uh, a reality of some of the things in your home that you've experienced, but, but that's not really the primary thing we're talking about when we say white privilege. Now you say, what, what do you mean? So I've, I've done this. This Renault's personal journey, just <laughs> FYI, not a commentary, just what I'm wrestling through. So what I try to do is I try to pull back, is there anything currently that I'm aware of that I have a particular privilege in, I don't have uh, an anxiety, a worry, a weightiness in something, I won't experience something, that my black friends or children will, that is exclusively tied to the fact that I am white or black. It's not tied to my economic status, the neighborhood I grew up into, single uh, parent home versus um, uh, two parents. It's tied to none of that, it's tied exclusively to the fact I'm black, or I'm white. And I discovered some incredible things. So in talking with many of my black friends and in working through with my children um, who are black and my children who are white as a parent, thinking through how I'm going to have to navigate them, I realized this, that my children, all eight of them, are uh, people that live with the possibility of being victims of acts of hatred toward them simply because somebody hates them. So for example, they might move into a neighborhood and the other neighbors don't like them because they're the new family and they're kind of rejected. My, my white kids may experience that. Uh, as I said in the video, they might get pulled over by a police officer and because out of this police station, this particular police officer is on a power trip, uh, like a few police officers are, not most, but a few, they may be the victim of somebody's over-aggression toward them, uh, and that, that, that could happen, yeah. Um, they may go to the workplace, and because of getting into the workplace, uh, their personality, their position, how they threaten others, they might be treated really badly in the workplace. That could happen. But here's what I realized. My white children don't walk into any of those environments already concerned or anxious that it might happen and recognizing that at some point in their life, it will happen in at least one of those categories. My black children, my black friends, they walk into all those same environments and they realize that the likelihood that they will encounter that at some point in their lives and perhaps even on multiple occasions that they are not accepted in a neighborhood or not accepted in a workplace, or that they experience a particular aggression, they are the victim of police brutality uh, in in a situation like that, because that's kind of on the forefront, is much more likely, in fact, likely to happen at some point. And it will be not because of their personality type, not because of their position. Those may be in play, but it'll be because they're black. It does actually happen. Now, we say, well, yeah, that's, I get it. uh, But that's, you know, heart to heart, that person across the road or that person at the office place, you can't help. And I'm like, yeah, there's there's people that have racism in their hearts and treat other people differently. That's gonna happen. But my black friends live in a nation where because of some of the foundational assumptions that have been kind of birthed into the generations that are, yes, diminishing slowly, I think, but are still very present in some of that baseline thinking, even in the subconscious, if not in the conscious, uh, are going to be the recipients of these kinds of um, acts toward them uh, in a way that my white children will not my white children might on occasion but my black children will need to be prepared on how to handle those situations because they'll face them so that that is the 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 privilege I have not to feel anxious or not to wonder about those things because I just go about life is a privilege my black friends currently in this environment don't have Now, the layers of the other things do play into white privilege. So I'm not suggesting white privilege is only that, and those other things we always talk about white privilege isn't, because here's the reality, that yes, it's true whether I'm white or black and I grow up in a single mom or single parent home, I am at a disadvantage over a person who grows up in a healthy two-parent home. If I live in a poor neighborhood, I'm at a disadvantage over someone that lives in a affluent neighborhood if I am in an area where the schools are bad because of the way the tax structure works, I, whether white or black, am going to experience um, less privilege than someone who grew up in an affluent neighborhood with great schools because of the way the tax structure works, right? But because of some of the things in our history and recent history, and even still in some subtle ways by, uh, in, our, in our present and some not so subtle ways, the structures that created a lot of these communities mean that a lot of our poor communities are communities that are predominantly communities that are brown and black, not because the people that are brown and black chose that or decided that but because of the nature of the history of our country how it produced that so now there is already a significant disadvantage and it's tied to the idea that part of my white privilege is not just the anxieties i don't have to carry but it's that i'm part of a history of generations that could accumulate, move, develop, and foundationally move wealth, and not just wealth, like rich wealth, I mean just the kinds of cycles of grandparents, -grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents, but also that in the infrastructure of our nation, there were opportunities given to my particular people group in this nation that were not given to those who are black and brown, and so now I am the recipient of those opportunities that are in the history and my black and brown brothers and sisters are not recipients of those. So that is a privilege I have. I didn't ask for it, I didn't create it. It's not my fault, but I do have it. And so until we are able as a white community to acknowledge, yes, I have some privileges that you don't and that's not okay. We don't have to simultaneously say, so therefore I need to bow down before you and beg for your forgiveness for the racism in my heart. Now, if you have racism in your heart, you ought to, but not bow down and beg, but you know what I'm saying. But it does mean that we need to acknowledge there there is a discrepancy between the privileges we have now as a result partly of the now environment and partly of the historical environment. And until we understand both the historical environment and the now environment, we can't acknowledge that I live with privileges as a white person that you don't on multiple layered levels. And so when we can acknowledge that without the trigger of it's personal, you're calling me a racist, you're saying it's my fault. No, I'm just saying it's true. And we can acknowledge that. And that's part of what needs to be reconciled as we take care of this cancer. It's part of what is the result of this cancer. Okay, so now I go, okay, I get that. How can we start working together to find out how we can unravel that, especially in the next generation as we raise our children? Which brings me to something that then leads to a discussion. As we start beginning the dialogue of acknowledging these things, the beginning of examination now begins to occur. And we examine it in uh, every space. We should examine it in our own hearts, in our own homes and families, and then in our neighborhoods, our nation, and everywhere else. That examination begins with an examination of how I'm engaging with my family. And then things come up like this. You know what? I hear you, I don't want my kids to grow up. See, Ned, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna raise them colorblind. Have you heard that said? Now there's a visceral response to that. Colorblind is bad. That I'm like, hold on, you just said it's bad that I'm treating you differently because of your color. Now you're saying if I say there's no color, I'll treat you the same. That's bad. Well, I, I'm totally confused. Well, then I started digging and learning, and I realized, oh my, oh my goodness, it makes perfect sense. Listen, when God created the human race, He created us diverse, and He didn't do that by accident. It wasn't like, oh gosh, I meant to create them exactly the same, like little robots and twins that do their thing, but I accidentally made them different. And and now in their differences, it started with man and woman. uh, Men and woman, FYI, you're very different um, on so many levels. Um, Diversity actually created the structure for God's creative display of his beautiful power and creativity and diversity. So he said, you human race, any one of you will not represent me alone, your collective will represent me because you can't exist in the complexities I can and the diversity I can. So I will make you a diverse people so that you can display me beautifully. The corrupted version of that diversity was that we used that diversity as a means to treat people differently, less than. So when we, in an effort to say, I don't see you as less than, we say I'm colorblind. But colorblind simultaneously, as on the one hand, it says, you're not less than, I'm not going to treat you differently because of your color. I'm going to see us as the same. It simultaneously also then says we are exactly the same. We have no differences. So I don't have to acknowledge those differences and treat you in a better, different way. Just like I raise my kids differently, FYI. I don't have exactly the same strategy for every one of my kids because they have different personalities and different gifts and different struggles and different challenges and different, different, different. And so I've got to, I've got to work with them differently. The power of seeing color is that it allows us to see diversity and it allows us to understand each other more deeply so that we can meet each other's needs in a more profound way. I can now raise this kid as a, when I'm educating, some of my kids love to read. So reading is how I, and some of my kids hate to read. So they still have to read some, but I try to have them learn it. Do you see what I'm saying? So what, what, what this gets at is I need to see color. I need to raise my kids seeing the beauty of color. I need to say, look, Look, there's different humans and some are black and some are white and some are brown and some are some of this and some of that and some of these personalities and some of those. And when you get along with them, it's going to be very different. And some of them come from harder places than you do. And you come from harder places than some of them do. And the beauty of humanity is that we engage in a discussion with each other to learn these things about each other, to understand what your experience is versus mine, so that my experience is more expanded as is yours. And I can care for you better and you can care for me better. That's the biblical intent of diversity. And so what we need to do is not raise our kids color blind, but we need to raise them color aware and we need to raise them with hearts that see color as a gift to the human race, not as a problem. As a gift to all of us, I am a gift to you as a white person, to a black person. You are a gift to me as a black person to a white person because we will know more of God because we know each other and we know each other's diversity differences and uniqueness. That's how we get to know God. And so that's why we should abandon saying colorblind and move into a space that says, I wanna teach my kids to love the diversity of color, to see it, to understand it and to love it so that they can see it as an asset. We are as a human race, an asset to each other in our declaring the glory of God to one another. So in that journey, Five more minutes, that's what I have. So in that journey, uh, a couple of things have kind of come uh, come into play. Uh, we need to engage in a journey of actually making change. Protests are great because they bring awareness, but remember, awareness, if it just stops there, is a useless journey for the cancer depression. It needs to lead to examination and examination to reform. So once we have awareness, let's not forget quickly, but let's engage in examination. As we begin to examine, um, we need to realize that the examination uh, is something that needs to take place in broad scope. When you do examination on cancer in the body, you do a full body scan at that point. You do blood work, you do tests to see where else the cancer is. That's not an attack on the whole body. It's not saying since there's a bit of cancer in the body, the whole body is cancerous and the whole body is cancer, kill it all. So typically in our examination initially, and you see this when somebody first finds out that they have a a disease like that, they make 26 calls to the 26 institutions and demand meetings immediately with doctors because they want a treatment right now because this needs to be eradicated and they're gonna do it. They have no idea that there's lots of tests that need to take place and lots of work that needs to be done, then treatments need to be developed and then, and you're not gonna die of cancer today likely, we've got some time, this is what the doctors know. So here's the thing, when we first say we need to examine everything, typically, I always wait for that moment where we will examine in extremes. We have seen recently that the police in general in our nation have been lumped into the space where it's like police are bad. Uh, everything police is bad. Let's let's um, dissolve the police. Let's unfund the police. Let's let's show these police. Let's show them how bad they are and how badly they've, and and they're all essentially because of the power they hold, just terrible towards. That is a reaction Uh, out of anger and and, and frustration with these uh, individuals that have misused power. But though we can argue without a shadow of a doubt, rightly, men, most of the police I know are amazing men and women with great hearts that care for their community and care for their community across the board. The trouble with the spaces is that for those who abuse their power, there are still a number of spaces in the system that allow for that abuse to take place, and it does not measure or hold accountable that abuse properly. Now, some things have been put in place over time to do that, but there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. And that's what we're saying when we say we need to examine the entire infrastructure. I I just saw a judiciary committee put together with actually one of my friends on it, talking about uh, when a policeman responds, a situation how far can we structurally allow that uh, to go and how far not what's too much what's not enough what are the rules to examine are the rules correct and individuals are just breaking the rules, or are there flaws in the rules that we fix and then hold those individuals accountable? Or is the structure that when they break, that individual who's on a power trip breaks those rules, that the accountability structure is not solid, so they feel like they can break the rules? This is like Parenting 101. Is the problem that I keep threatening my children, if they do that again, I'm gonna give them a consequence, but I never do, so they keep doing it? Is the problem that they don't know they're not supposed to do it? Or is the problem that they just don't care, and so I need to, make the consequences bigger. This is examination and we need to enter. But while we do, if we are a part of this rant against our police in general, then we are just doing the very thing that we are standing against that was the problem in the first place, that we are making giant assumptions based on our general structure about a people group that isn't fair. And it makes people within that people group to say, hey, when I walk down the street, Just because I am a black man that's six foot one, it doesn't mean you need to be afraid of me. doesn't mean I'm violent. We we do these kinds of things. And now we're doing it on the other end, and I get it. But listen, our policemen and women wake up in the morning, put on body armor, and risk their lives to be in the spaces none of you and I want to be in. Because there are spaces where people are doing things that put our and their lives at risk. And in that space, some policemen and women abuse that power. Some do. And if the structure doesn't compensate for that, well, we need to do some reform on the structure. But let us be careful not to project our vengeance toward a group of people that are actually protecting us. So I use that as an example of how delicately we need to step into the examination, but we can't ignore examining because we're afraid we're going to offend that group of people. And we can't examine with vengeance. If we do either of those things, it's not helpful. But if we say, guys, we're going to need to examine this. We're going to need to look into it. Okay. We're going to need to check your knees and legs and everything. Yeah, it's going to be more tests and it's going to take more time, but we got to make sure that there's no cancer there. And if we find cancer there, then we can do something about it. So when we say there's systemic racism I've heard a lot of people say, oh, that's ridiculous. It's in the hearts of people. I go, well, here, here's the good news, right? It's time for us to go through all of our systems in the judicial system and the law enforcement systems and our foundational systems and our and ask. Well, let's look into it then. One of us is right. Let's look into it. And if we find stuff that's there, that's not working, that creates the space for racism to exist, then we need to eradicate that. And if we don't, then we can say, good. You don't have it in your lymph nodes. Well, that's a relief. And we move on to the next organ and we go look for it there. As we do that, we see that reform in our hearts, in our homes, our neighborhoods, our families, and in our nation, we then need to come up with solutions to engage in reforming things. And folks, those solutions need to be solutions that are gospel oriented solutions. Now, if what you think I mean is just preach the gospel, have people come to Jesus, because when everybody comes to Jesus, then there'll be no more racism. Well, yeah, that is probably true if everyone comes to Jesus, except that, wait, wait a second, lots of people who know Jesus still do a lot of stuff that's very racist and are actually racist. So knowing Jesus in of itself does not solve this problem. Yes, conforming over time in a journey of sanctification, being willing to look into our own hard hearts will certainly make great change. But Jesus also calls us to be a voice for Him on this planet, in areas of bringing about change. Jesus did not walk into villages and towns and go, look, I'm gonna leave the dead dead. I'm gonna leave the sick sick. I'm gonna leave the hungry hungry. I'm not here to do any of that. I'm just here to tell you, the kingdom has come, follow me. Believe in me and you will be saved. And then he rolled on to the next village and he did it again. No, he fed the 5,000, he healed the sick, he made the blind see, he brought the dead. And often go read it in the Bible. He would do that and just that, and then roll on and people would follow, and then he would teach. The gospel calls us to be a solution to unredeemed spaces on this planet. That's a social justice. And we've often said social justice is bad. The church shouldn't do that because it's not the gospel. And I'm like, no, no, it is one of the gospel responses. Not the only one, but it is one of them. So as we look at reform, we need to come up together with how we engage in this in a biblical manner to bring about solutions. And we should have been doing this from the get go, folks. You know why organizations like Black Lives Matter had to do what they had to do, take on these issues? Because the church sat by and didn't. That's why. Matt Chandler did a great video just recently uh, where he said, we, the church, are fast to point fingers at these movements and they're not doing it in a gospel way. It's ridiculous. They're dissolving the family structure. Do they think that's a real solution? While we sit quietly and idly by pointing fingers and doing nothing. Black Lives Matter, the statement, should have come from the church Folks, it should have come from us, the white church. That's where it should have come from. And if it came from there, we wouldn't have all these difficult conversations about whether we should or shouldn't use the phrase. But it came from a movement that was trying to do something about a terrible issue because we weren't. And it's time for the church to say, not only what is the gospel solution to reform, but how can we be the voice and the advocate and the most passionate uh, in that gospel reform so that our black community watches us as they sit on the bed, tired and exhausted from chronic pain, and now all of the stuff that has to happen, fight their fights for them and be a voice for them after we have sat with them and listened to them and said, what do you need us to say? Because we will say it for you. And if that's what we begin to do, examining all this, examining our hearts and being a voice, I think we'll make some progress. So this is not a commentary. Uh, You'll probably tear it apart and say a bunch of stuff as you watch this, but that's okay. This is just me on my journey having breakfast with you and telling you what I'm wrestling with and what I'm still trying to figure out. And I'm excited to sit with my black friends who have lived this far more deeply than me ongoingly in lunches and breakfasts to learn from them. And next week, we'll get to do that together at a lunch with my black friends and me talking together about what they see and what they've learned and what they are trying to help me understand that I don't yet know. Love you guys. Appreciate you guys. I know this was a lot of talking, not a lot of interacting, but just wanted to kind of get this on the table over this lunch. And in lunches in the future, we'll be doing a lot more back and forth again. We'll see you soon.